Welcome to the Edition Wars podcast, where we take a deep dive into the mechanics and playstyles of all the editions of our favorite game. We look at what worked, what didn't, what led to better games, as well as what didn't, and we talk about it all. In this episode, we are going to discuss a third-party product, Isirion's Inchiridion of the West Marches. This is a product written and designed and edited and laid out by Dom Liotti and Sam Sorensen. Um, I purchased my copy in hardback off of DriveThruRPG, and I liked it enough that I almost immediately went and purchased one for a buddy of mine um, because I felt like it was going to be his deal. So, spoiler, I like this book pretty good. With me tonight is my ever-delightful co-host, Sam Dillon. What's up, Sam? Um, Not much, except I will say that my good co-host, Brandis, mentioned this to me and told me about it, and I went and bought it on DriveThruRPG, and then I went and got the hardcover, too. So, spoiler alert. (laughs) Yeah. Um, So, this book is about a style of play called the West Marches style, uh, which was first expounded by uh, Ben Robbins. Um, And in a lot of ways, it looks back to what Gary Gygax and Dave Arneson were doing in the earliest campaigns. But it, I, I would say it like brings more of the design into a, a more modern uh, user-friendly for the DM kind of place. Um, it incorporates the way lore has developed and what people want to see in lore has developed over the years. Um, I mean, I, I believe Ben Robbins was running for third edition uh, in as he talks about in the blog posts where he expounds this whole thing. And um, it's... Uh, a style that I have not run specifically, but I've taken elements of it for my homebrew campaign, the, the Orakash campaign that I've now been running since 2012. By the way, I've been running a campaign since 2012. What <laughs> is happening? <laughs> Crazy talk. Old Sam. So I have technically speaking, not run a West Marches campaign, no. but you know, as somebody who's playing, since dirt was invented, as Jeff Greiner says, um, I have played all sorts of different styles, including the earliest styles. And so, um, you know, the early game and the procedures for wilderness hex crawling and the procedures for generating things sort of on the fly or during prep that allow you to sort of create a cohesive yet still surprising kind of setup are what this book is about. And those things align really well with that play style, which is basically my preferred play style is that sort of more old school, you know, harsh, gritty, you know, elements where, you know, it's not level dependent. You could walk around the corner and meet something that is, you know, definitely more powerful than you. And how do you deal with that situation? Um, which is a much usually 
related to sort of the thoughts about a much older style. Nowadays, we tend to try to set up situations where the the players and their PCs will have a challenge, but that challenge is usually able to be overcome relatively simply with the tools and resources that the party has available at that level. Not a situation where you round the corner and you're, you know, facing Smaug in the mountain and you are one PC and obviously Smaug could best you in a I mean, fair you're, in a you're fair one fight, PC right? with the ruling ring, so it's probably going to be okay. Right, right. But pretend you didn't have that ring and you turned oh, the corner oh, and there's oh. Smaug. Now, now we have a problem, <laughs> right? Now the dragon definitely has the upper hand, but it's that sort of thing. So it's it's kind of, um, in some ways, West Marches is the culmination of a sort of idea of a style of play. And this book really uh, goes a long way towards trying to make this a viable format for fifth edition. And I think it succeeds at that in as much as you can make it a viable format for fifth edition, which I think fifth edition is pretty well suited to it. So I think it does a really good job of it, but we'll, we'll get to that. So, um, so, so do, I, do we I want to a, start? <laughs> well, right. Well, sure. I have a, a broad question for you that, you know, I'll probably bring up a number of times as we go through this, okay. the odds of us getting through this in, a small number of episodes is not high. Um, <laughs> so what you're saying is 2022 22 is the year of Iserians and Caridian of the West Marches. Okay. Hey, man, we, we spent 21 on the Dungeon Master's Guide, so <laughs> I, I don't know what you expected. <laughs> eh, whatever. Um, right. So um, what, I'm, what I'm thinking about is, okay, this is in principle written for 5th edition. Mm-hmm. But I, I feel like a lot of it is very, very exportable to your beloved castles and crusades because oh, it can't absolutely. not be. Sure. And so I'm going to be curious to see what you think is best for lifting for your CNC experience. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like it's, it's not against what the writers wanted. It's just sort of tangential at most to what the writers wanted. Um, sure. And, and also, if you are not familiar with a lot of things we've talked about so far, dear listeners, um, I want to mention the touchstones that the book calls out, because I think those are informative if you're more familiar with modern video games. Uh, so the authors regarded uh, Dark Souls by From Software, Darkest Dungeon by Red Hook Studios, Destiny by Bungie and The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild by Nintendo EPI as their touchstones. Um, I mean, that is a strong promise. Mm-hmm. That That is bold. But if this book delivers on that, then uh, you have me forever. That's three of my favorite games. Right. I haven't played Destiny, but oh, oh Lord. <laughs> um, <laughs> like it, in the course of pandemic, I, I went from never having played Breath of the Wild at all and almost never having played Dark Souls to now I finished both of them. Mm-hmm. And I've also played more Darkest Dungeon and watched my wife play a bunch of Darkest Dungeon and been really, really captivated by the things that tabletop games can take from those. Since, of course, 
all of them are taking things from tabletop games, mm-hmm. maybe Breath of the Wild least, but still, you, you get me. Yeah, so sidebar, you know they're coming out with a Dark Souls RPG, right? I, I do. Uh, I, I find the idea very interesting. Um, it's got a that, 5e chassis. So Right. Yeah. Uh, things that promise to be Souls-like, it, that is a fascinating prospect. Um, maybe a little aside from what we're going to talk about, but I'm going to say it anyway. You can cut it if you want. Yeah, that's <laughs> typical. Um, what constitutes Souls-like? Like, there's so many different things in the Dark Souls franchise, and it's such a distinctive game. So what you regard as being worth taking away says a lot about what you enjoyed and, and what you valued in that experience. Um, like, from what I've read about the Dark Souls RPG, they're planning to center the like uh, the the peril of a fight. The uh, like, I die, I go back to a bonfire. I maybe transfer some souls to the bonfire to protect them mm-hmm. from being lost. This kind of thing, and I can see why you would center that, but it's not what I loved about Dark Souls. Mm-hmm. And what I see in this book is centering more of the things that I loved about Dark Souls. Interesting. Um, yeah, I have not, I have not played Dark I'm, Souls, so you know, yeah. it, it, it is an acquired taste. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's been acquired by a lot of people, but. Um, it is it is a game that is committed to being hard and that that means specific things mm-hmm. but on the other hand it is a game that is committed to um presenting a story in light touches so that the the audience needs to dig in and this is the absolute killer app of the whole thing the audience needs to talk to each other for anyone to understand the story. Right. right. That's the thing that a friend of mine pointed out to me. Uh, and it really crystallized a lot of things in my mind. And it's what the Dark Souls RPG itself is not going to be able to deliver, but a true West Marches game can. And it's what we cared so much about delivering in Dust to Dust uh, through independent invention of a similar idea to what Dark Souls is working on. Mm-hmm. Um, it's the idea that um, in a single playthrough or even in half a dozen playthroughs, you might not see or might not take notice of the whole story of what's going on. Um, in in a LARP, you absolutely are not going to see the whole story. There's just more encounters than one person can absorb. That's right. normal. That's what you're supposed to do as the game runners is present content for the whole player base. Mm-hmm. And there are things that bring everyone together and there are things that split everyone apart. And those differences of experience create interest, but they also drive conversation. And so the dark souls wiki and other fan communities are this place where people exchange their ideas about what the real story of dark souls is. Well, that's West marches. That's that's the community map where the players add to it and make changes to it and all of this 
because there are more players than can sit down at the table at one time. Mm-hmm. And so it, there's a clearinghouse effect of, of rumors. Maybe it's a clearinghouse of lies in some cases, mm-hmm. but they're, they're experiencing it together. And so the story becomes this very complicated thing of people's individual memories and impressions. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'm so excited about how this book talks about that. And that was one of the things that got right into my imagination, just right into my brainstem and stayed there forever. When I read Ben Robbins original posts on this. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it means that um, there are still conversations to, to have about the text of a game years later. Right. 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 Yeah. So, so before we, before we move on, I just want to point out that, you know, a lot has been made of uh, the books that Wizards of the Coast produces and the disclaimers that they have on them. And I, I just want to read the disclaimer on this book because they are definitely going for the idea of this is part of the fifth edition of D&D and this fits in perfectly with the way that Wizards of the Coast, the publisher of the game, publishers of the game, have presented their game to the world. And so here is here is what it is. Uh, it has a cover image, and there's a cover, and, and, and it, sh- it reproduces the entirety of the cover image here, and it tells you who, uh, who drew it and what the scene is showing. And then the disclaimer says, we... Dom and Sam are not to blame when player characters die horribly at the hands of random encounters, unexpected boss crits, or from ignoring clear dungeon telegraphing. Furthermore, we are not responsible for player character deaths incurred by freezing weather, wild beasts, very long drops, wandering too far from home, making deals with dragons, mishearing lore, or bringing only one water skin. And that right there tells you exactly what is important about this style of game to the minds of the authors of this book, that those are the types of challenges that are going to be preeminent in a game if you run it the exact way that they are trying to present it here. And that's why it calls back to old school roots, because some of this is about resource management and making sure that you are prepared when you leave with your group to go to do your mission, you're prepared so that you can come back and then you can go on a mission later as well. And that's a, that's a moment that is very recognizable from darkest dungeon. Most of all, Mm -hmm. Uh, I think that I've been in a lot of groups that, um, really struggle in the sort of spectrum of feeling in your sort of pre-adventure shopping between uh, we need to work out sort of a meal plan and a bill of lading for everything from here to our destination. uh, And, you know, need to count everything down to the last 10 penny nail. Mm -hmm. And at the other end, Oh God, can't I just pay you 50 gold and it's fine. <laughs> and, 
and right. those people are at the same table with each other, and mm-hmm. there's not sort of a ton of of even table consensus worked out at the time of play. Mm-hmm. And I I'm not saying either side is right. Absolutely not. Um, I'm saying both of those tastes and all the steps in between are valid. Um, but uh, this game, this book stakes out a a position. And I, I guess what I want is some more help for getting all of the players to have a good time with their own position on that spectrum of choice. Yeah. You, so, what I'm saying? yeah, but I think that you're waiting for something or asking for help that is not being offered because I think that the position that they're taking is. Uh, it's okay if you don't like this style of game, but this is the yeah. style of game that we're presenting. Yeah, so no, I, I'm not saying this book is like going to do it. it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. If you don't like it, you should probably find a different game to be in for a little while. Um, or come in with an open mind, and maybe there will be things that you like enough about it that you can ignore the things you don't like, right? right. Um, and, which is, which is you know, a valuable you know, thought. Well, and in fairness, that group that I'm speaking of uh, all it actually needed was, you know, a a tool for the party quartermaster because we had people who were delighted to be the party quartermaster mm-hmm. to do so, taking up less table time. Right. Right. Yeah. Uh, one of the nice things about sort of that gearing up your party screen in Darkest Dungeon is its speed and clarity. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, now, the other part of it is that there's a sense in Darkest Dungeon, and I think there's supposed to be a sense in D&D, that um, all of the costs that you're laying out, those are your ante for the hand, if you mm-hmm. will, mm-hmm. right? And you're, you're telling the game how much you need to recoup to not take a loss in the whole adventure. Well, one day's iron ration is not much, friends, in D&D. <laughs> mm-hmm. In Darkest Dungeon, it's much more expensive. And so it fits into the scale of treasure better and feels less ignorable. One of the things that makes it feel ignorable for players who take that, here's 50 gold, can I not think about this position? I'm not sure to speak for all of them. That would be way overstepping. For mm-hmm. some of them is, you know, okay, a crummy treasure in this game is 50 gold. You want me to care about one silver? Why? And they have a point y'all like they have a point. Yeah, maybe. But the thing is, it's not that we want you to care about the silver. It's that we want you to have planned that you're spending that silver on something useful. Mm Mm-hmm. Right. And not just yeah. saying, here, let me throw all this money at you and you're going to return to me the most uh, most important equipment pack in the world. And it's going to have every single thing that I want and that I'm going to use. And that's yep. where the that's where the difference in playstyle really is. It's not about the 50 gold and care about one silver instead. It's about do you care about planning to buy 200 feet of rope 
instead of just saying, give me 50 feet of rope? And do you care about whether it's silk rope or hempen rope? And do you care whether you are getting a grappling hook with it or are you going to tie knots? And do you, you know, those sorts of things, it's a very different, you know, throwing 50 bucks at it, throwing 50 gold pieces at it is an indication that you're not so concerned about that sort of resource management. And that means that when those resources leave, you might not realize how devastating it is when the pack accidentally floated down the river because mm-hmm. you all got hit by a wave and it turned the canoe over and you couldn't recover everything, right? Like right. until that PC now is suffering, now it suddenly makes a difference, right? And right. That can be really fun and it can be really not fun. And it mm-hmm. and so I'm not I'm not any by any means saying that this is the only way to play the game, or that if a person doesn't like this kind of game, well then they don't like D D, or that they should definitely, you know, obviously try this. And if they just had a good DM, they would love it. I'm not saying any of that, but it's not really about that gold, right? It's not really a situation where you're saying, okay. I'm telling you, here's how much I'm anteing, here's how much I'm willing to put up, and I better get more back, right? Because in this particular situation, sometimes it's about the experience that you get learning what you should be buying next time versus the fact that you spent 50 gold on what you did buy. Mm -hmm. But those are the lessons that are learned through play, right? So anyway, we're getting way ahead of ourselves. So do you want to talk about the content notes? (laughs) Absolutely, I do. Um, so on the first page after the table of contents, uh, there's a page of content notes. And I think that there's a lot of important, useful stuff here. Um, it, it starts with safety tools and a discussion of uh, lines, veils, and the X card. Um, I'm not going to get into what these are. They're important. I, I think that you need to be paying attention to safety in your game um, and use these tools or something like them. Just do it. I don't, I don't want to hear the inevitable counter arguments for we don't need safety tools. You do. If they don't get used, great. You stayed safe. Or maybe you didn't and someone didn't feel like they could speak up. Um, uh, next up is uh, content warnings. Um, this is discussing the the fundamental grimness of your your West Marches style game, where you're, you're going out into the world and the things you're encountering are occasionally friendly. Occasionally, you can even turn an enemy into a friend, but that is not going to happen a lot of the time and and things are often nasty brutish and short uh, party wipes are a very real part of existence and that's kind of soul crushing um i mean it's also part of video games that are listed in, in those touchstones that sort of failure cycle is very real uh for all those games including breath of the wild uh and when and you talk about a failure cycle for a Zelda game, so you know Breath of the Wild is pretty different. Now all I can think of is uh, Harn orcs, um, which are nasty, brutus, and short. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I had a, a history teacher in high school who was uh, a, 
an immigrant from uh, merry old England, mm. and uh, she was of diminished, uh, of sort of diminutive stature, mm-hmm. and so she described herself as nasty British and short. <laughs> nice. <laughs> she was wonderful. She yeah. was such a wonderful teacher, <laughs> um, with a great sense of humor for everything except me writing Happy St. Paddy's Day, Aaron Gobra on the <laughs> chalkboard on St. Paddy's Day. She didn't like that very much. Um, but that's, yeah. that's me in high school. I don't know what to tell you. Um, so, um, so at the end, at the end of this little section that you're talking about it, this is where, this is why, where my statement earlier comes from, where I said, this book is not going to give you what you're asking for, because it says, if you realize that this game isn't for you, don't feel bad for a moment about not playing. The West Marches is a very specific game, and it's certainly not for everyone. So basically, they're saying, here's how you should do this. You should use these tools, and you should base, basically make sure that you are 100% transparent about the type of game you're running. And if the players don't want to play it, sayonara. Don't feel bad. Just leave. It's better to leave early than to get in deep and then suddenly realize you don't like this and you want out. And that's more, way more disruptive than than the other version, right? Um, it sounds a little harsh, right? But ultimately, it's just the honest truth. If if you're playing in a game that you don't really enjoy, sometimes it's best to just bow out. Um, but I also know that the reality is a lot of people don't really have that choice, right? If you're playing with a group that you've played with for a really long time and somebody wants to run a game like this and it's just not your preferred style, but you don't want to necessarily leave your group. So ignore the fact that this seems a little harsh. All it's really saying is understand what you're getting yourself into. It's okay if you don't like it all the way, if it's not your favorite top 100 game, you know, the best ever, but just understand what you're getting yourself into. That's all. Um, after that comes a full column section on racism and colonialism, um, and how for West March's games, uh, it is very hard, even harder than standard D and D to remove racism and colonialism. And, uh, it's a, a pretty, um, pretty upfront discussion of, those things and how they factor in here. And um, it talks about how, you know, a committed GM can work to solve a lot of the problems. Um, it, it's talking about, you know, uh, racial alignments and racial, racial stat modifiers, uh, which is interesting because that's something that Watsi is specifically moving against right now as we see in um, Mordenkind and Presents Monsters of the Multiverse. They've uh, re-released all of the um, monsters from uh, Volo's Guide to Monsters and from a bunch of other books as well. And they've gotten rid of a bunch of the, the most problematic elements. And so we have every reason to expect to see that trend line continue into the 2024 revision. So, you know, this is addressing a problem that Watsi also regards as a problem. Um, some of the colonialism of uh, go into a dungeon, uh, wreck the face of everything there and leave, well, not so much. Uh, but 
that you can address through you know, why the creatures are there and things like that. There's there's space to address it, but the, the book wants to acknowledge it as uh, an inherent set of problems without saying, so that's why you can't play in the West Marches style. Right. Yeah, so you know, there's a difference between um, recognizing something is problematic and then ignoring it and moving on, right? And recognizing that something is problematic and also acknowledging that some of the problematic parts are still part of the game and that you can ameliorate those a little bit, but they're, they're just part of the game at this point. Um, and so having knowledge of that and making sure that you know that is better than just ignoring it. But ultimately, you know, depending on your stance about such things, um, this could be very distasteful to some people. Still, uh, it, it also talks about um, it, it, a character in the West Marches is not inherently heroic. Uh, heroism is a different set of choices that you can make. Mm-hmm. But um, I'm going to read the paragraph. Uh, True heroism comes from reforming and advancing the existing systems of society to make significant changes that benefit everyone, including the marginalized and oppressed. Slaying dragons and looting tombs is fun, but don't make the mistake of allowing the spirit of adventure to dull your sensibilities to the deeper questions that prod endemically at the seams of the game. Mm-hmm. So I think that I think that's a good like, mission statement for them right. to be working with. Well, so just for context, let's give the audience the 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 sort of premise of why this could be problematic. It says sure. uh, it says consider this for a mo- consider for a moment the basic act of an adventure. You, the adventurer, travel far from home. You break into a fortified location. You kill or drive out its inhabitants, and then you take everything of value that they own. Afterwards, you return home. You're rich and wealthy, and you are lauded as heroes. And you know they're just pointing out that when you go to that other location wherever that location is um, just the act of, of, of you as a, as a PC going to that place, killing all those things or running them, uh, running them away and then taking all of their treasure and coming back makes you inherently a hero in that mindset. If you are in agreement with that mindset and that is the style in which the game was played for a very long time and which the game was written for a very long time. And then what they're pointing out is that's not actually the thing that makes you the hero, right? Like doing that, that specific thing isn't actually heroic on its own. That's just going and looting and killing. And that's not heroic. So to understand what the actual heroism is, that's where they're going with this. So they're acknowledging, you know, certain problems with certain aspects of the game, and then they're moving on and, and talking about how you can possibly, you know, provide just a slightly different mindset, right? The shift is a large one, but you can make it step-by-step. Yep. And that's something I've definitely been trying to do in my own game, but now we're getting way into Mm -hmm. me grappling with this on my own. Right. So, and I guess, so here's the thing that I like about this section, right? Um, I have been playing D and D since 1982. I am not about to sit here and say that the game is absolutely the most horrible thing and it has all these horrible elements to it. Um, I understand the problematic elements. I understand it has those problematic elements, but 
I also understand it's a big part of me and my life and who I am. And so this is something to grapple with, to understand how this game and some of the sort of colonialist ideals right that it that it purports to be the thing that makes you heroic or that it sort of teaches you or you learn is the thing that makes you heroic how that can be problematic and that is something that you know i grapple with um and you know i'm not always successful at it right and and you know part of the issue i'm a white guy right so colonialism in my lifetime has not affected me directly other than giving me privilege and so, you know, I, I'm the type of person that tries to understand these things and tries, I try to be sensitive to these things for other people for whom it does affect them directly or it does affect their families directly uh, in a non-privileged way. And it's really hard to come to terms with those sorts of conflicts. Um, but that's, that's the work you do, right? Like that's, that's being human. You know, you can't just ignore certain problems. And if they directly affect something that's such a huge part of my life, I can't just ignore them. I have to at least acknowledge them. And because I try to be a good person, I try to work through and figure out how to address issues like this in the best way possible. And that's just part of what I do. So that I appreciate this section because they're acknowledging that that's basically what they're doing too. Mm-hmm. So anyway, um, so then then in, in the next part, we're sort of introduced to the two characters that are giving us this information that's in this book. And this is, again, a style that is mimicked in fifth edition texts where uh, there is a person, you know, Volo for Volo's Guide to Monsters and, um, you know, writing little notes, right, and uh, writing just different things, and Morden Kanan uh, for for the Tome of Foes and whatnot. And what we see here is the the actual name of the book, Isirion's in Caridian, is because Isirion is the name of a black dragon, and uh, his scribe Zadrok, who is a a kobold. Uh, are they are both sort of compiling this information for us so that we can uh, learn the ways of the West Marches, so to speak. Yep. And then they tell us, or the, the authors tell us, that this book uses three kinds of sidebars. They use blue sidebars, green sidebars, and red sidebars. And so they've tried to lay this out so that um, blue sidebars, uh, they they sort of explain topics or certain certain elements um, in a, in a different way to try to help you understand why they are saying something that they're saying in the text. Green sidebars give suggestions and advice on how to, you know, take what they're putting in here and convert it into something that works for your own game. And then red sidebars are direct advice to the GM where it's giving you suggestions and rules of thumbs and things that you need to, um, think about and make sure that you try to do or not do certain things related to this particular element because uh, of the way that they're trying to present the game. So, so it's an interesting and uh, it tries to be a very, um, a very helpful text in terms of it's trying to orient the reader to here's why this is in here. Here's some examples of how to use this. And here's some, 
uh, points that might be sticking points or points that might be problematic that you might want to think a little harder about when you implement these in your game. And I appreciate that attention to trying to give us different types of, of sidebars and different types of advice and information in the book. I think it's a, a good effort that they're trying to do that. Um, I know that's something you've mentioned uh, more than once or twice in uh, behind the DM screen, mm-hmm. wanting to see more of mm-hmm. in adventures. And I mean, this book is uh, constrained by page page count, but mm-hmm. uh, they solved it by going for a smaller font. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, the font, the font is brutally small. Is, I don't know what to tell you. Is really tiny, people. It's really tiny. Um, and uh, yeah, painfully tiny <laughs> on some pages. Yeah. Uh, but um, there's a lot of text in this book. So it's not like, oh, there's a ton of white space and they put really tiny fonts. So it looks really odd or it looks unbalanced. No, it's just, there's a lot here. And there really is. there's yep. tiny, tiny font because otherwise the thing would be 300 more pages and it's already 126 pages. Yep. So if you add two or 300 more to that, you'd have a four, 400 page book. And um, I don't think they wanted that. They wanted a smaller format book. Um, but yeah, small, small font. So then they move on to a section entitled, what is this book? And and really what it's telling you is um, where the idea of the West Marches came from. Uh, they give you a couple of warnings. They say, number one, it's a lot of work. So don't think that this is going to be something that you're just improving and you don't have to prep for. Um and the next uh, warning is that a, a West Marches game excludes certain kinds of campaigns. That is, anything that is super duper intensely political uh, is going to struggle because of the way that they lay out how this, this sort of game is set up. And anything that is going to um, be long-term with a cohesive single group of PCs is not really what this is made for, although it can be hedged into this, but this is really not for that type of style of play. Right. Um, I mean, in, in my campaign, I've had, uh, I counted today 60 characters and probably North of 30 players and a lot of that is churn because we moved from North Carolina to Georgia mm-hmm. in that time. And people have come and gone and some of them have come back mm-hmm. uh, more than once mm-hmm. um, in, in <laughs> 10 years of being an adult in, you know, this millennium. Right. But, you know, um, but that's that, what this that, that's the, what this is made for, right? Is yeah. for multiple players playing multiple characters each. And right. when you show one up, of, you're you're doing a different min- mission a lot of times, right? Yeah. One of the things to definitely understand in my experience is that uh, the idea of canon and what anyone remembers can definitely get muddled. Um, if I have not done a good job taking notes, which I very often have not, so. <laughs> Mm-hmm. I would need to really level up my note-taking game and my prep game to run this effectively. That's note one to me. Um, 
I, I tend to have a very improvisational style, and mm -hmm. that is one of the things that scares me about this. Um, so that's really funny because I do too, and this doesn't scare me at all. Like I, mm. I already sort of have this um, idea of how that works because the improv comes in the individual sessions, right? And the the thing is, though, I'm heavily on the improv, but I also take really good notes. So that's probably where I'm mm -hmm. okay with it, and you're not. <laughs> yeah, you know. Um, well, one of us is a uh, uh, college professor, and the other is. Uh, <laughs> Well, I, I got my bachelor's degree. But, <laughs> that has nothing to do uh, with it. <laughs> mm. before, a... we, before we started this call, Sam, we talked about people who knew how to study and people who didn't. I, anyway. I want to assure you, I got through high school and college on, mm -hmm. on talent, not skill. Yeah. I did not learn to study ever. <laughs> So there's a there's a funny meme going around. I see it. It's been going around for a long time. I see it every couple of months or whatnot. And it's this person looking at their notepad and it says, oh, hmm, according to my notes from the last game, that here's what we did. Old tavern rats, one potion, <laughs> old book map demons, question mark, lady with red hair, 200 gold, fixed broken sword, gallstone, tall cleric. Don't trust the elf. <laughs> It's like, Lord, yes. okay, yes, this is, this is the one, <laughs> this is what it is. Mm. Uh, and so if you're the type of person that writes one sentence for notes for a whole session, this is probably not going to be the kind of game to run, or at least you're going to have to understand that you might need to adjust that particular yep. stylistic choice. Um, the way to do that. And so this is totally off the book, off the books or whatever, but the, the way that I do it is because I, I'll have when I when I have my prep, I'll have different segments of of what I you know what's going on in the, or different locations maybe in my in my notes right, and I'll just write right on that paper that I printed out. You know, I I always do it on paper so that I can write in case I'm also need to be looking at someone or whatever. You know, I'm writing down stuff, so it's a very yeah. like if you have your prep there with notes, just get used to writing all over you. Like my pages just have scribbles all over them, all in different directions, just crazy. And then I just retype them later. So nice. It's crazy. Yeah. Anyway, so back to the book. <laughs> yeah. So then, um, then they give reasons why a, a West March's game is a good style to run. Um, it gives you a lot of flexibility. It gives you an emergent narrative that is, you know, in other words, you're not just planning A, B, C, D, E, and then the end game. And it's not all on the DM to plan every single thing all the time and have everything in mind and all the end game in mind all the time. And uh, it really lets some of the players incorporate the types of things that they want to do, because in essence, they're choosing which missions that they go on. Yep. Um and that is definitely a, a real joy of uh, sometimes you can come to the table with nothing and you ask the players, so what you doing? Mm -hmm. And they've got an answer ready to go. And you roll from there with ideas you already had. Right. Uh, that, that to me is sort of the pinnacle of the improv DM experience. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, then emergent narrative. Uh, I mean, I, I love good emergent narrative. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. uh, of just the players totally throw me for a loop with something I didn't see coming, whether it's 
okay, so if you cast this spell, it would do this and this and this, and I guess the ceiling would collapse, and we're off to the races, right. you know? Yep. I think that is some of the real magic of, of gaming that separates it from uh, well, really the magic of tabletop gaming and LARPing that separates it from most kinds of video games and board games and novels and movies and so on. Right. Yep. It, it, yep. That's what really like sets the whole medium of uh, human run games apart from everything else. The ability to respond as a human. Right. Right. Uh, yep. And and lastly, the game at its fullest is uh, it's an interesting thing to even try to promise because there's so many different things that could promise to be this, right? Um, like, it, well, they they give an interesting example though, right? Yeah. Trying to trying to make their point. So here's what they say. They say um, the reason that this is a more complete fulfillment of the of the promise of the game is that there are a lot of spells, abilities, and features that either seem weak or that seem lacking, and that those items can blossom if you're playing a West Marches game because here's a quote: when you must carry all of your gear on your back, for example, strength is a vitally important. Strength is vitally important. Likewise, even the most basic of cantrips, like, say, mending, become indispensable. When your rope snaps 30 miles from town, being able to ensure that it holds secure can become tantamount to survival. And again, this is just bringing – this really is about your point you made earlier, though. Do you care about the one silver piece piece of rope or the cantrip that doesn't seem to have very much meaning at other times? Or do you care about just throwing 50 gold at it to reduce that problem down to a nothing, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where, they're, that's where they're trying to make their case, that a lot of the elements that get glossed over or ignored as weak or not useful or only useful in such extreme edge cases that you would never care about it in a typical D&D game, well, you do care about it in a West Marches game, yep. at least the type of West Marches game they're laying out here. Yep, I think that uh, I think that is what they're what they're getting at. Uh, I'm just saying that I think uh, sort of a political thriller that makes all these social skills really matter is also a kind mm-hmm. of uh, delivering a del- oh, sure. yeah, yeah, fulfillment yeah. of the game. Yeah, yeah. Right? No, I'm not. Say- so I'm not on, saying right? they're that, absolutely right. Yeah, I'm not saying they're absolutely right. I'm saying they make a good case, though. They make they a do. case oh, of. For sure of a certain style that harkens back to the older versions of the game. And so it fulfills that unfulfilled yeah. promise. Uh, right. Yeah. I think, I think like, putting the game through its paces is a, a pretty good phrasing to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, sure. So uh, that brings us actually into chapter one. Congratulations. We're an hour into the uh, episode. It's chapter one. <laughs> Uh, if you expected anything different, <laughs> you've never listened to Edition Wars before. <laughs> yeah, th- th- then why am I on this show by now? Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so, so this is the overview of elements, and it's you know breaking down the the core things that are here to set um, West Marches apart, and a bunch of we've already touched on mm-hmm. in this episode, uh, but this is where they lay it out. Uh, it's talking about the, the 
player pool, which is more players than come to one session. Uh, the character roster, where each player has multiple characters. And so they're maybe pulling together a party roster based on, well, maybe we don't want to all play fighters tonight. Maybe we want to spread it, uh, spread it around some or whatever. Uh, and then getting into mission parties, uh, generally a mission party should be no less than three people and no more than six. So that's, you know, your standard actually at the table, right? people and characters, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then uh, it gets into talking about the map and the town and the wilds and uh, how those are sort of demarcated. And we're going to get a lot more about these as the book goes on because mm-hmm. there's a lot to develop. Um, but uh, but do you have things you want to say about? Okay. Well, so it's it's um it's it's laying out the idea of what the West Marches is, and so it starts, of course, with that the player idea, right? With the with the having the player roster, the character roster, and mission parties. That's really at the heart of what's happening because what it means is that you can have different players show up on game night. And every single person that's there is going to have a stable of characters at their disposal that can go on any whatever whatever mission they decide to go on that day. It's not necessarily pre-planned, although sometimes it is, right? And so they're going to be there and they will be available. And then the sort of next direction it's going is to tell the DM that a West Marches area is really split into kind of uh, two two basic or three, I should say three basic areas, right? There's the town, right? And then there's the wilds and, you know, there's the idea of the sort of the part of the map that's not on the map. That's, that's the edge of the map part, right? Where there might be a vast stretch of territory that's not even mapped. Okay. So that's your sort of three kind of ideas there. And the two that you're going to focus on are the town, because that's where you're going to replenish your resources, and the wilds, which is where you're going to find adventure. And so it's just kind of laying those things out. And then, of course, I think there's whole chapters on each of these elements as we go forward. So this is really just an introduction to here's how we're – they do a really good job of let me introduce an idea, give you a little bit, and then later on there's a lot more details about it. Yep. Uh so the town is always safe. Uh, you don't have adventures in the towns, uh, in, in the town. Right. It, it is it is secure and not a place of excitement or experience points or even treasure. Mm-hmm. But you do have to keep coming back here because it's also your perpetual jumping off point. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And so, so, so that's this is cool. this is one of those ideas where the NPCs matter, but they don't matter in terms of the adventures there. They matter in terms of if you piss off the blacksmith and he's the only right. blacksmith in town, right? Or you piss off the the stable master and she's the only one that can shoe your horse, you know, or she's the only one that can put your horse up, right, for a night. Well, you just made a really big problem for yourself, right? But that's yep. not the adventure. That's just interpersonal communication amongst the town NPCs. And the town is meant to be a safe space. So 
you don't ever really bring in the idea of the town not being safe because if they can't leave the dungeon or tomb or wherever and come back to where they know is safe, then the game doesn't really work the way it's set up to work. Yep. They have to have that downtime space. And, and this is one of the, the, the elements most recognizable from Darkest Dungeon, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there is a town where you come to get rid of the bad things you've accumulated and to right. expend the good things you've accumulated so that you can take those characters back out. Uh, but in um, anything, everything from Darkest Dungeon to XCOM, some of those characters might need a while. Mm-hmm. You might have to let them cook for a while before they're ready to go back out. Um, uh, and I do appreciate the section on nothing wagered, nothing gained in terms of uh, you can't stay in town and sort of uh, let your risk averse player nature uh, predominate. That that doesn't work here. Mm-hmm. Well, and there's also, it also actually sort of collaterally with that idea this collateral effect of it very much also mimics a sort of um, sword and sorcery Conan vibe, because if you think about Conan, or if you think about, um, you know, some other sort of sword and sorcery famous stories, right? What you see is this, this person who goes out in adventures and does all these things and gets all this loot and then goes back to town and spends every bit of loot in safety but every bit of loot gets spent. They gamble it away. They buy food. They buy rounds of drinks for everybody. They're entertaining everyone. And then the money's gone. And now they got to go back out and do other adventures. Yep. And it's and, sort of it's sort of meant to be like that. And uh, Far From the Grand Mouse are, are an interesting counterpoint there mm-hmm. uh, because they do have adventures in, in like town itself. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that uh, town is so big, though. That you know, right. it's so well, huge, and, yeah, and like sort of what um, what Fritz Lieber is doing is there are safe places in the, and there are dangerous mm, places right. within the city, but mm-hmm. he wasn't trying to lay out a game. He already designed right. a game. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. <laughs> Interestingly enough, mm-hmm. um, but <laughs> it just makes me think about like uh, some of the stories there about that actually take place in like more. Um, mm-hmm. Anyway. Um, Next, we get into the wilds, um, and the design of the wilds is actually a really crucial thing. Uh, it's something that we saw in uh, saw laid out really usefully. I felt in the second ed DMG, uh, where different regions were definitely tiered in terms of danger. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know if you remember that that page. The way it's been seared into my retinas, uh, <laughs> probably in, not in as my childhood. Much as you. Yeah. <laughs> um, so, so there's a there's a section that's talking about, you know, there's the, the plains around the city, then there's the hills, then there's mm-hmm. the forest, right, and it's right. naming each of these yeah, yeah, yeah. to make it feel more definite. But then there's the mountains, and the mountains are the real danger is, and and so that section of the DMG is definitely pointed at the same thing that. Mm-hmm the authors are getting it here. And I think that's quite nice. Um, and then there's also dungeons as sort of your, your really bright spots of danger and treasure. And so you might be moving through the wilds to 
I mean, hopes of finding a dungeon worth exploring. Um, well, dungeons typically have a lot of loot, so yeah. that's why you would. It's a, like a, a finding a diamond, right? You go in right. to try to chip out that diamond, and then you can go home with the loot. Right. Um, like the, the regions are, by and large, something you move through uh, in hopes of finding. You know, dungeons. Dungeons mm-hmm. are something you mm-hmm. go to and possibly leave and come back to. Uh, and then the discussion of danger level is a huge part of both your West Marches play and your your old school play, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, because danger level isn't smooth, it isn't customized to the party, but it does telegraph itself. And, and this is absolutely key. You give players reason to suspect that they're in over their heads before they commit the fatal error. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is an idea that's really hard to get across because uh, they start out by saying um, that you should have encounters and challenges that are at roughly the same level of danger, right? Yep. within a particular area. So you're also relying, and it will go into this later when it talks about regions versus dungeons and all that, but basically you're relying on the party, the players themselves, to take their PCs that are of an appropriate level to meet that challenge, right? And if yep. they don't, the, it's on the DM to tell them, look, you know, that's really more for seventh level PCs and you, you're all third level. So... You know, and you can do that directly like that, or you can, of course, have them hear rumors or they hear from the, you know, the tavern keep or something that, you know, that that area, the last they saw there had a big whatever creature, you know, that's that's too too formidable for that that party level. Right. Um, But the thing is that the idea here isn't that you dissuade them from going anywhere. Unless it's such a huge thing that they're obviously going to get TPK'd, right? It's the idea of them paying attention to the clues while they're on the adventure. Yep. So they can go anywhere, but well, when they hear when they hear about the owlbear that's in that forest over there to the left, and they choose to go there and poke the owlbear anyway, and then the owlbear eats them all, well, you know, you didn't pay attention right. to the fact that everybody said there's owlbears over there. Right, and, and that does assume the players have some some kind of context for what an owlbear is and how tough it is. Sure, absolutely, right. yeah. And that if you if you tell them, oh well, there's a some random creature over there, and they don't know what it is, they're going to go try to find out. Mm-hmm. Right, and for if sure. they don't, then then you have right. Then that's a case where you need to have a conversation with the players, or you let them learn that that's what they should have done, that they had other options they didn't think of, right? Right. Um, and that's why is, they have extra characters. Right, exactly. Right. This is why you end up with a stable of characters. That's exactly where I was going, was this is why so many all the P, the players have so many PCs, because you're, you have to end up, you know, some of them are probably going to die because they don't know how to make the correct choices yet, right? They have to learn that. You can't tell them everything. So basically it says, um, you know, they want the challenges presented to be, um, they want the challenges that are presented to the party that's on that mission to be beatable, but with what the party has, with the tools and resources the party has. But that doesn't mean that everything has to be balanced. 
It means that there should be dangerous things that you're hinting to them and they can make the choice to avoid them or confront them. And then that's on them. That's on the players. That's on the PCs. So it's a, it's, I'm actually not sure they do a very good job of describing it here. I think they do a better job in the chapters because they're trying to blend in this little two or three paragraph section. They're trying to blend the sort of old school, everybody's going to die type of game with the new school. Every challenge that you meet is going to be successful, successfully right. defeated. Right. Well, well and for, for fifth ed, especially we need to say that um, characters who are free to dump resources can hit way above their weight. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like way above their weight because uh, ACs don't get priced out of the market and saves don't get priced out of the market mm-hmm. because of um, it bounded accuracy. Right. That's a fundamental design principle of fifth edition. And it just means, hey, this thing has, you know, twice as many hit points, but it's going to be a challenge, but but we're free to spend all of our healing surviving that challenge. Right. So, okay. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, yep. And that's one of the ways that you know, telegraphing challenge and delivering challenge can be demanding on a DM in fifth. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's something they're trying to address in um Monsters of the Multiverse. Uh, we'll see how it comes mm-hmm. out as more people play with the new monster stat blocks and get a sense for them. Right. Well, so part of the reason that it's challenging in fifth is because imagine this. Imagine the DM telegraphs that there is a really big challenge over there mm-hmm. in that area. And you got to be really careful and you, sh- you know, they, they, they take all the precautions. They get really healed up. They get all their resources. They go over there and the thing's a cakewalk, right? Yep. That's and then the next, the next time the same thing happens, the DM telegraphs that it's really dangerous and they got to do whatever, whatever. And so now the players have an idea. Oh, well, when this is telegraphed, it's not really real, right? It's not true because then we have a cakewalk on these things mm-hmm. because we were told it was going to be super dangerous and then we went to meet it as if it was super dangerous and it was easy. So now the next time the DM telegraphs how something's really dangerous, they don't take yep. precautions because they don't believe it. It's like the boy who cried wolf. Yeah, cried right? wolf. Yep. That's and exactly then, what I was going to say. And then they go in and they get whomped on and they go, Oh, that was so unfair. I didn't, I wasn't expecting that because what you told us before was telling us it was dangerous and it wasn't. So now we expected that to match yeah. that, that so, type of so telegraph, right? That mismatch. What Here's what I, my point of this. It's not the DM's fault necessarily because sometimes, right, when there's a creature that hits far below their CR or far above their CR, the DM just gets it wrong because those aren't always as easy, especially if in a, if you're playing in a West Marches game and you're not exactly sure which PCs are coming along for the ride, oh, you yeah. can't necessarily plan, oh yeah, that creature is going to be a cakewalk for that player because they have, you know, they do radiant damage or whatever, 
right? Yep. You don't always know that. And it's not always easy to figure it out on the fly or even remember that that PC has whatever fancy gadget they have, right? So, yep. you know, I'm just saying it's not always the DM's fault. And sometimes no, no, tele- no, telegraphing no. that kind of thing is very difficult, but you got to be really careful about accidentally telegraphing it the wrong way several times because then the players will never, they'll never believe you're telegraphing. <laughs> so I have had a a sort of, gaming philosophy thing in in my head for a long time that it still might be wrong me having in my head for a long time doesn't make it more right but i kind of believe that uh game runners should go out of their way to uh deliver a defeat sometime early in the game Mm -hmm. to teach the pcs this is what a defeat feels like and here's how i have a graceful defeat that I can do something about in the future. Right. Um, Because I think that it is really easy for PCs to get big for their riches and not understand what to do when things go bad, because they got really comfortable with the cycle of victory. Mm -hmm. Well, it's not supposed to be, a smooth path of victory on victory, there need to be some downbeats, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. The downbeats are a big part of making the wins feel good. And that too is essential to West marches. You've got to have times when, Hey, look, you know, this mission was a bust. Let's go home. And you come limping back into the town with uh, not a lot to show for it. And maybe you're maybe you have a hungry belly too, so mm-hmm. you're drawing on money you saved up just to eat at the inn, right. right? I think that you do need that moment so that when you go somewhere else and have a, an easier time of things, so then you've leveled up and you go back to the the place where you got stomped, you can feel that. That, that feels like it means something. Mm-hmm. And every new thing you've gotten that delivers you that victory just paid for itself. Right. Uh, like uh, defeat and defeat and defeat followed by victory are, is a huge part of the emotional dynamic of Dark Souls. I mean, famously, right? Mm-hmm. It's, it's a famously hard game where you're going to you know, hurl your face at a boss a dozen <laughs> times trying to learn it. Mm-hmm. And maybe you need to go, you know, earn some more souls and level up more so that you can possibly win it. Um, and that's totally just a thing. Um, that's, that's part of the experience is trying to deliver. Um, and I think that, you know, delivering that in a tabletop or a LARP, you don't want as many failures it, for most games, as Dark Souls or Darkest Dungeons wants to deliver, right? But some is probably good. Um, like, I've listened to an actual play that was really, really dedicated to its dynamic of uh, the players kind of failed and failed and failed until but they weren't brought to a full stop by the failure. They just had to keep changing course mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. through each failure until they got to a place where they could 
win by the skin of their teeth a mitigated victory. But the mitigated victory was still a victory of some kind. Mm -hmm. So it felt like something. Uh, It was an emotionally brutal thing to listen to, but compelling. Right, right. I mean, Um, you know, brightness always seems much brighter after the dark, right? Exactly. Exactly. And it isn't that I'm, you know, here to brutalize PCs. The PCs in my Arakash game don't have a ton of experience of losing, Mm -hmm. but Mm -hmm. they have things close enough to an experience of losing that the encounters have stakes, right? Yeah. So the, the feeling of almost not winning is as almost as good as a defeat for that yep. purposes, right? If yep. they have three three events that occur, whether it's a combat or a puzzle or some kind of interaction or whatever it is, some combination of something, three events in a row where they succeeded, but by the skin of their teeth, that has as much impact as three defeats in some ways, right? In terms of trying to get them to realize how dangerous or precarious a particular you know, position or situation is right. That and has, especially that has if, effect. especially if they really feel like they had to expend something that is now gone for good right. to win that last victory. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. But consumable items are great for that, right? <laughs> yep. It's consumed now. It's used up. So mm-hmm. gone. that's a great thing. Um, so, <laughs> Here we get into a section that I find sort of because it's talking about something that is the the most out of game, out of game. Um, <laughs> I find it harder to engage with because just the social dynamic of my games can't live in that space. Mm-hmm. I, I don't know about you, but I sort of suspect that most adults would have a hard time with um, – the players schedule their own sessions and the the GM is a light touch in how that scheduling goes. Um, but I mean, yeah. they, they quote one of our favorite lines. I know. I, from, I, I know. I was going to, I was going to say that you yeah. cannot have a meaningful campaign of strict time records are not kept. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> Thanks Gary. Um, but I, I'll agree that, you know, the, the calendar needs to be a thing. Right, the seasons need to come and go. Right. Yeah. In yeah. in West Marshes, that that's got to yeah. be real. Um, yeah. But there's a sidebar on uh, why players schedule their own sessions, and that does not have any points of contact with my reality. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So for for the audience, here's the idea. The idea is. The game is played in missions. I keep using the word mission and we didn't really define it because it's not really defined until this page. Okay. And really what a mission is, is, is this idea that every time you play, you're playing in a sort of, I don't want to say monster of the week style, um, but you're playing in a monster of the week style. You're playing in an episodic style. So every session begins with the party leaving town and every session ends with the party coming back to town, no matter what, no exceptions, full stop. So you know that during the course of that game, they're only really going to do a limited amount of activity outside of town. And then they're going to come back. And because you know about, 
you know, travel distances and whatnot, you know what could possibly go on in the amount of distance they want to travel and how long they're going to be gone from town in game, right? So you should keep track of time. But the idea is that each session is a mission and that mission might take weeks or months or just days or just a couple of days or whatever, or it might take whatever amount of time, but each session is a mission. And then here's the part where I think Brandis is is not able to comport this with his reality. And that is that along with this, that means that the missions that are chosen, you, you have a selection of missions available, right? So, um, the the players have played in this West Marches area in this in this style for a little bit. And so they know that there are certain areas and regions that have certain dangers and that there have been certain rumors and certain different things they've heard about from other PCs and whatnot. And so they know what the possible missions are. And they, the players themselves are going to decide what the mission is when they meet for that session. And then it takes it a step farther and it says, and because of that, the players themselves should be the ones scheduling the session. Like they should be the ones saying, hey, DM, we want to play this mission this Saturday. And I think the best players are going to be A, B, C, D, E, and we should all be there. And they schedule it so that they have the people that they want there and that have the characters that they want for that mission. And all the DM does is show up with that mission ready. There are like six different things wrong with that to me. Well, I understand where they're coming from. And this isn't maybe the reason it doesn't shock me or isn't doesn't feel weird to me is it's not the first time I've heard of this, right? Like this, mm-hmm. this I've heard of different games like this lots of times. I personally have never made it work because in my adult life, I've never had a situation where I could rely on the players. If even if we had a consistent, like we're going to play every Friday, like I've never had players say, oh yeah, and tell me on Monday, we want to do this mission and it's going to be me, Joe, John, and Mary, right? Like yep. that has never happened, right? Yep. Um, but I've also never asked them to do that. So I it, I guess it possibly could, but in nowadays, I don't have a set day that I'm just, okay, I've got my 20 players and they each have their six characters. And on Monday, I put out a call on Discord. This is how I envision it could work, right? You put out a call on Discord and say, hey, what mission do you guys want to do? Talk about it and tell me by Monday evening. And then they all get on there on Mondays and they decide who's going to play the game that Friday or whatever the game day is. And then they yeah. tell me the mission by Monday so I can be prepped for it. And then those specific players show up on Friday. It's It requires a some kind of balance of mostly equally motivated players that uh like that by itself is not part of my experience mm-hmm, right. because um there are players who very much enjoy the game but are not going to engage with even scheduling level obligations outside the game right. i don't really want to exclude them mm-hmm. but this would be a, a hard barrier a hard and totally non-negotiable barrier for them. And mm-hmm. I've been gaming with them for, for 20 years. I, I know the score. It's not going to change. Right. Um, also, um, this really strikes me as similar to choosing um, module parties in LARPs. Um, and 
since my players are all people who've LARPed together for that same aforementioned 20 years, mm-hmm. like there's so much like danger of even in a group of, you know, only 10 to 15 players, which should be a terribly small LARP by local <laughs> standards uh, of developing weird clicks and you know, one click managing to dominate all of the DM's time mm-hmm. and a lot of hurt feelings as people don't get invited to adventures that were something they were interested in. Right. And there's no advice here on how to negotiate that, mm-hmm. but there's an mm-hmm. enormous amount of negotiation this is calling for. Right. I don't think I can support this. Well, I think that it, I see all the risks of toxicity here. And, and it kind of feels like it's this fantasy world where, hey, three of the players want to play on Wednesday and they recruit two other players. So now you've got a five-person party on Wednesday. Oh, and the other group, they want to play on Friday. So now you're going to play on Friday too. And then, well, then half of the first group and half of the second group, two of the players from the, from Wednesday and two of the players from Friday, they want to play a different mission on Sunday and they're recruiting this other third person who didn't play in Mon- Wednesday or Friday. And like, like that would be a great thing that would be a great fantasy i if i was running a wednesday a friday and a sunday game with right. an intermixed group that it was always fair and always had different people in it and was always i mean like that's pure fantasy for me but like you want to talk right. about fantasy role-playing game that's fantasy right like that's just not going to happen i mean yeah. i'm lucky if i can get my game every two weeks going right and nowadays just because right. of whatever real life stuff right we're all adults you know um and and even with my my teenage group, you know, they've got they've got things they have to do too. They have responsibilities too. So, you know, it's not it's not like, you know, when I say we're all adults, I just mean we all have responsibilities outside of the game. And yep. it's really impossible to get people together. It's really, really hard, right? Like, what yep. is it? There's this great, there's this great uh comic and it's like uh the, the um they it's like a genie or something and saying oh i'm gonna grant you you know uh, uh, one wish I, if i grant you one wish what would it be you know i can give you anything and the person's like oh i want you to you know i want to be able to consistently schedule my rpg game where you know all the players can show up and the genie's like nope sorry i can't do it it's not possible <laughs> i can't i cannot yep. grant the impossible you know yep. and like that's that's kind of how i feel so I agree with you in in sort of sentiment about this. Like, I feel like it sounds like this great thing. Like this this could be so dynamic and cool and slick, but I I don't know that it would work with the players that I that I play with. And right, yeah. like I don't know people who could really make that go. Now, also, this was written back in a time when people could just go to each other's houses. Right. Yeah. Of course. That's weird. Uh, yeah. Uh, how? Yeah. I mean. Anyway. You know, this the same way. Well, let's see. This is copyright 2020. So. Uh, is it? I, yeah. I feel like I definitely had this book. Well, th- that means the book was written before. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Because that's how I mean, yeah, yeah, writing that's works. Yeah. yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. But I mean, I guess, I guess the thing for me is that's not even it. Like, in fact, you would think it should be easier with things like Discord and you know, Roll Twenty and Fantasy Grounds and all those, and and just the ability of people to get on a common 
chat program and talk to each other in real time without having to, you know, whatever, or even just texting on phones. Like you would think that it would be easy to do, but you know, it's just not that easy. It just really isn't that easy. If you don't already have a, a game that is sort of set up like this, you know, then it's really, it's difficult. Now I do know, I will tell you that I do know that there's a guy on the castles and crusades, um, the troller games um, discord, and he runs a pickup game every other Friday. And it's basically whoever shows up and then they go on their mission. Mm-hmm. And um, it's an, he does it in El Surveil, which is the, um, the actual area from the red hand of doom. Um, and, uh, and he's not doing red hand to doom. He's just using that area as the sort of area. Right. Um, and he runs a fantastically fun game. He runs it for like three hours every, every other Friday and it's great. And it's whoever shows up, shows up and then they work together and they do things. They, he doesn't, they don't go back to town every week, but they, you know, they're basically on a few missions and whatever. Um, and that works because it's literally drop in or don't, and it's, there's no commitment from anyone, right. Other than him, he shows up every other Friday. Um, and that's not what this is. This is, you have to schedule your own. You have to ask for a certain mission that you want to play in and you have to make that commitment. And, you know, what this also doesn't tell you is, well, what happens when the five PCs are ready and then one of them has to not do it because something came up at work or something came up at home, you know, sick kid, sick pet, sick parent, work called, now you got to teach a night class. (laughs) That happens to me all the time. Sure. Um, You know what I mean? Like, it's like that stuff happens. So what do you do when that happens? You cancel that mission? Well, but people committed. I mean, and so someone listening to this might say, well, but that happens in other games too. Yeah. But if you're playing a long form campaign, then a person missing one session isn't a big deal. But in this case, they specifically planned a specific mission for that person. Right. So yep. now it's kind of a different setup. So I don't know. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. I don't, I, I, I can imagine how it works. I'm not sure I belong to any groups that I could make it work in. Although I would guess if I advertised to run a West Marches style game and I said it was going to take place every Sunday from a certain time to a certain time and I asked for players to sign up and then sort of laid it out. I think it could be possible that it could work like that, but I think the player pool would have to be very large to begin with. So. I I do agree with that. Like getting a large player pool is the easy thing for me at this point because so many of people in my LARPing community mm-hmm. are Atlanta area and interested in tabletop gaming. Right. Just woof. Mm-hmm. That's scheduling. Anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. So let's move on from that. <laughs> I think we can get through about the end of chapter one. Yeah, maybe. And then the session, <laughs> yeah. the, the episode. Oh, yeah. But. Um, so the, there's discussion of the map, and the map is another of those just incredibly grabby pieces of the West Marches style mm-hmm. that I adore. And uh, in I know in Ben Robbins' original uh, blog post about this, the conceit was that the hand-drawn map was scratched into the table at the inn <laughs> with the right. daggers, and they'd mm-hmm. make modifications that were just as permanent right. to share ideas with each other. Like that's, that's beautiful. Of mm-hmm. course that's grabby, 
yeah. How could you not be excited by like, like everyone's excited by maps? Come on. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, <laughs> and it says by default, the map should be a blank piece of un- unmarked paper. Players are responsible for the scale, accuracy, and detail of the map using their own wits. Uh, if players proficient with cartographer's tools, the GM may provide them with graph or hex paper and a ruler, but that is at the GM's discretion. And so the idea is that you know you're going so, to take this thing and you're going to go get it wrong. Yeah. So it says at each session the players should have a real paper map in front of them, which they can alter as they choose, provided they have at least one character who's mapping while traveling. Right. So yeah. they're going to get it wrong, which is perfectly fine. Um, but there's also you're going to see this in later chapters a lot of leaning into active information gathering on neighboring areas mm-hmm. right mm-hmm. Um, like this is a big part of Tomb of Annihilation right. and the hex crawl in there like you go to Firefinger so you can climb up to the top of it and see farther yeah mm-hmm. that's right. that's the pitch yep Um we did that for sure. Now stuff is a little too spread out in Tomb of Annihilation, mm-hmm. so there wasn't a lot interesting for us to see. But that's misuse of tools, not absence of tools. Right, right, yeah. Well, and here is a point where they have one of these really nice blue sidebars, and I'll remind yep. you that the blue sidebar is to talk about uh, a chance for the authors to say, here's exactly what this means and why we did it. Okay. And so here's the blue sidebar for this section. It says nothing on the map should ever be confirmed by the GM as true or as the reality of the game. It should remain uncertain based only on what the players have learned in character and any player can edit the map and players are free to erase or draw over what they already would already exist on the map. In some cases, the map can serve as a kind of shared record or a log. Players may find it. Players might find it helpful to leave notes, diagrams, or annotations on the map. All of these are fine. Whatever the players want to add to their map, they can. Frankly, other than bringing it from the session to session and perhaps uploading it once in a while, the GM should never ever touch the map. So you never give them confirmation one way or the other about whether the things that they have drawn on there, set on there, noted on there, or whatever are true. Yep. And that's a really tough thing for some people, right? Like that is a particular stylistic choice that I for sure know that a couple of people I have played with would hate that. They want concrete consistency. They want to know that that forest is that big and in that spot. And that's where the rumors about the giant, you know, <laughs> spider were right. Yeah, they don't um, want to get there and then not be in the forest and go. Who the hell drew this map? It's wrong. Yeah, the map is not the territory. Is mm-hmm. hard. Right, it's hard. Right, and it, the the thing I want to say is that um, a lot of players are not entertained by note taking, mm-hmm. and so um, they're going to forget stuff even one week later, much right. less two weeks or a month later, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. that's, that's rough. Yep. So uh, getting a number of players who are very motivated note takers, or if you're really ambitious session recorders, you can just <laughs> right. record that bad boy and listen back to it. Um, that's 
that that's everything. I mean, there's yeah. a reason that uh, uh, Marisha Ray is one of the best players in Critical Role, and you mm-hmm. can take that to the bank. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, you know, it really is. It is a stylistic thing, right? It's the same. It's this has the same sort of gravitas in this type of game as the whole resource management portion, right? Because the whole idea is for you to 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 manage your resources correctly, you need to know that that mountain range is two two days travel away and only two days travel away. Because if you only buy enough rations for two days travel, two days in the tomb, and two days back, you're going to run out of food if the mountain's in the wrong spot, right? And so that's very important to make sure that you're looking at those. On the other hand. It's part of the conceit of the game that it remains mysterious whether it actually is correct. And that's why the map isn't. I mean, look, who doesn't love really awesome cartography? I mean, I love maps. I even love the really old school, like old style, you know, maps in real life where they totally got stuff wrong, right? The <laughs> they got they got the the coastline is totally wrong, the distances are totally wrong, but they're really cool looking maps, you know? Um and in fact I did this in DD brief, right? Because they had this map that was made, but the distances between the islands was completely off. <laughs> and the thing is they had to realize crap we've been traveling this is we didn't find the island and we're not off course so this is there's something wrong here and they eventually discovered that the reason why the map is incorrect is because something's happening and the islands are actually moving farther yeah. apart from each other right yeah so rude yeah i know i'm such a bastard so <laughs> this is why but it was a problem they had to figure out and solve right but it also led them to some realizations about oh crap we really have to do something here so you know this is the sort of thing but having a map that is an unreliable narrator so to speak is really important to this style of game because you're playing different missions and with different sets of pcs each time but the same map so that actually adds to the mystery and the uncertainty of it and that's part of the game Right. And for some people, because they really like cartography and they want to know the exact map, it's a little too gamey. Right. It's like trickery. But I actually love this part of it. I think this is great. Um, One of the things I take from this is that I would love to see some uh, electronic tools for helping players manage the player map Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. separate from DMs managing the DM side map. Right. I think you usually see uh, maps that have just one owner. Mm-hmm. And like in Roll20, the players can't go choose to look at a different page. Right. Yeah. So like even if they had ownership of the map and could add stuff to it as they wanted, mm-hmm. they can't which I don't know if you can do, anytime. they can't just yeah. go there. Yeah. And that's a whole problem. Yeah. In Roll20, um, the players can draw on the map. Um, and so can the DM, yeah. but yeah, but they yeah, can't yeah. choose what page they're on at any given right. time. Well, and right. some of those drawings, you're going to want to be able to, the GM's going to want to be able to move them down to the GM layer mm-hmm. and make them permanent right. so that they don't get accidentally grabbed and moved around. Right. Right. Cause that's no good. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that brings us to the, well, th- that plus the hacking the game, two paragraphs, um, <laughs> which are really just saying 
this is fifth edition. Go forth and have fun. Mm-hmm. Right. Just yeah. like everything else. Um, that brings us to the end of chapter one. And um, I'm really excited to get into this book with you, Sam. Um, I know that one of the biggest questions that I'm left with at the end of chapter one is uh, how long of a session do I need to run to have a satisfying mission and get that content completed in that time window? Because I don't know about you, but like I, I can easily have a team spend the first half hour of a three to four hour session just deciding on the mission. Mm-hmm. And that, that starts to be a whole problem. Right. And well, obviously they want you to schedule that. So yeah. it's not happening. Right. But they're, they're, there's going to be catching up on uh, what we already know about the place and right. all of this stuff. Yeah. So their ideal is yes, you've already chosen the mission beforehand. Um, but I agree with you. I could easily have my my party sitting there for a half hour discussing everything and deciding what mission and what characters they're going to take and all that. And now already 40 minutes has passed before we even get to the nitty gritty. Um, I don't, I mean, do they, they don't really spell out, here's how long you should take, whatever. And the reason they don't is because it's going to vary by mission and by group, right? For sure. I, so I just, that's a pacing should- issue, right? They talk about wanting you to finish the mission in a single session. Yeah. And that is not what my groups do best. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Right now, I've got two different groups that are in the middle of a dungeon, of, mm-hmm. of separate dungeon crawls, mm-hmm. and they're, they're sort of mm-hmm. stuck in timeline. Right. Right. And, right. and that's so, okay. Yeah. But so, so the conceit of this though, see, that's the thing is that what the other thing you need to make this work other than, you know, a big bunch of players and a big stable of characters, you need buy-in that you're always going to leave from town at the beginning of the session and come back to town at the end, no matter where they are in the dungeon, they have to get the hell out of there and come back to town. Yep. Like that's, that's one of the conceits. And so, if you're not, if everybody's not willing to agree to that, even no matter, you know, that doesn't mean that you now suddenly only make three room dungeons because you know you're not going to finish the session before they, right? Like that means that if the dungeon's bigger than what they can do in one session, well, now that's just another mission. Okay, dungeon X level two. That's our right. mission for next time, right? Right. And so, and, and yeah, the only thing about that is if you've said, well, that dungeon is. Uh, six weeks travel away. Mm-hmm. I think your players are pretty justified in saying we're not traveling six weeks out there and six weeks back, and six weeks out there and six weeks back mm-hmm. for each piece of this mission. That feels horrible. Yeah, I mean, and presumably you're 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 not going to go six weeks out, right? You're presumably you're the things are closer than that, right? They're not going to oh, be six weeks away. I, I, I'm unclear on that at this point in the book. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay, that's fair. At this point in the book, yes, I could see why you would be unclear on that. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, the and 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 they might leave it unclear actually in the in the appropriate section. I'll have to revisit that. It's been a while since I've read that section, but yeah, I same. think it's the implied right. The implication is you're not going to have them travel so far that you know 2 months of game time has passed before the next mission can occur because then that's also unfair to the other groups what are they doing for those 6 weeks right a fine question right if everybody's on the same timeline right and so those are the types of things where i could see 
the sort of mishmash of mission and different PCs becoming a problematic thing. That's also why they say it's very important to keep time, right? Um, Because you have to be able to see those issues coming and be able to resolve those before they actually become issues. I mean, the very first thing we're going to get into in chapter two is travel pace. So Mm -hmm. there's that. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. But yeah. um, This is something like a really good West Marches campaign is one of those pie in the sky, maybe some days to me. Um, And we'll see if I ever actually manage to carry one off. That is a a true West marches Mm -hmm. of exploring the world and that kind of thing. Um, But a lot of what we're going to get into in this book touches on stuff that I've been talking about. Um, The there's pieces of dungeon design that are very, very relevant to the campaign source book and catacomb guide. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I mean, they're practically reframes of the same idea. Um, right. And I, I think that uh, I strongly suspect that we're going to kind of feel like we're seeing uh, Janelle Jaquie's fingerprints on that, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. through uh, dozens of other writers and interlocutors, but I yeah. think that those same ideas about what dungeons can be and how they can communicate history and texture and richness are, are going to show up there. Right. Right. Yeah. And I, I mean, you know, I, I have, I've done sort of a West marches campaign, but a sort of an altered form, right? So in Castles and Crusades, um, you know, the characters are very squishy at first, second, and third level. And when you level up in that game, you train, you have to go train. So when you level up from first to second level to learn new skills, you have to actually go away for a week and train with somebody who is better than you, right? Someone who can mentor you and teach you those skills, who already knows those skills and can train you. Yeah. Um, and then you pay them a certain amount of money. It's very first edition AD and D like, right? Because of that. Yeah. And then, then that person can come back. Well, we don't stop the game when that PC goes off to go get trained, right? We just have that player create a new first level PC, right? And now they're now that first level PC. Now we integrate that person into the group, and then you know maybe two sessions later, you know another PC levels up and they go off to go do their training, and now that person. So I've got you know six players, and they've each got two or three characters that are actually active in the same little mini setting and in the same, you know, situation that's happening. And so in that way, it's a little bit West marches, although I don't make them choose the missions beforehand. Um, but that's sort of by necessity because of the training rules. Cause if you've got a thief that levels up relatively quickly compared to say the wizard, very AD and D like, right. Um, that yep. person's going off to have to get weeks of training and the wizard never went off to train yet. And the, and the thief's been gone, you know, three three or four weeks out of the past three months just to get trained and they're now level three and the wizard's still level one so uh, you know yeah well you say uh but when that wizard hits level three they're basically you know uber powerful so i mean <laughs> you know you're you, you, you we're in the quadratic wizard you know linear fighter kind of issue here um that, that is a different problem to solve to me it is, not it is to a, embrace but that's me yeah, it's a different well, so the thing is like the 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 thief, the reason they level up so quick is because their skills are so low at first, right? 
I mean, right. you know, no, it's like I, I a, you know. did the math and yeah. saw just how quickly they get where they're going. <laughs> and mm-hmm. I mean, it, it helps, but yeah, all that time having to play a different character when it's just kind of, but I just did this. I got like one session. Come on. Yeah. I mean, it, it seems frustrating to me. Well, okay, but also in Castles and Crusades, leveling up is very slow. So they played like oh, 10 fair. sessions before they okay. level up to first level, right? Like, or to second level. Like, we're not talking about, you know, every other session, somebody's taking off for two weeks. Like, okay. this is where they get, you know, several sessions, you know, 10, 10 or so. In fact, I think it might have been 12 sessions before the first person leveled up, right? Yeah. So, yeah. And I mean, we're, we're talking about, you know, there, I mean, it takes, you know, a long time. This is, remember, this is way back when, you know, orcs are, are five XP and money, money is worth XP. So, you know, and I'm stingy. So they, it's not like they come home every, every time and have, you know, 5,000 gold to spread around. Sure. So, yeah. But anyway, the totally different topics. But the idea is is very similar, though, where each player has multiple characters, yep. and you basically can choose because at a certain point they all end up being third level, right? And then you choose who you want to go and game with that day, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And in that case, it's really fun because it gives you some variety. You're not always just playing that same one PC. Oh, that's definitely a huge part of Orakesh, mm-hmm. right? Um, like rabbit has a bunch of different characters and they care about different things. And so mm-hmm. she will mm-hmm. often choose who she's playing based on what the group has decided to do. Right. Um, there have been some really strange party lineups. I mean, it's an unusual D and D party mm-hmm. where you have multiple barbarians in the party. Uh, <laughs> yes. Yes. It that, is. That, that's not all that common. Uh, we had party rosters really early on especially because we were playing during D&D Next and mm-hmm. there was some oddity about class and class identity in relation to skills where there were four fighters. That was the roster. Just Everyone's a fighter tonight. And it wasn't they planned, we're, we're going to bring our fighters. It's just, nope, the four players I've got are all playing fighters. All right, sure. <laughs> and it was fine, actually, because... like. At second level, uh, fighters have a ton of staying power, and uh, you know, like second wind mm-hmm. and action surges, forget about it, they're great. <laughs> What's the problem? Um, you can handle all kinds of stuff, and um, we just there's just been all kinds of unusual rosters like that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the adventure groups right now is um, a, a fighter, a ranger a multi-class cleric wizard, a wizard and a paladin. Like that's all reasonable, but like cleric is the very short end of that multi-class. So (laughs) they've got a wizard and mostly a wizard. And I don't know. These are just things that, that happen. Um, When sort of no one's going out of their way to make a balanced party. That's not, uh, a goal that they feel compelled to pursue. Um, they've just all got ways of solving problems, and a new roster is all about finding new synergies mm-hmm. within the team to make it work. Mm-hmm. Yep. 
Yeah, which is which is its own little fun, right? It's its own little fun yeah, area. It really right? is. Yeah. Well, so I think that is going to end this episode. Um, we're probably going to spend several episodes on this uh, because it's a very fascinating style of play. But also, aside from that, even without actually implementing, you know, the sort of a couple of the main conceits of this, like the players scheduling their own sessions and choosing their own missions, even without that, the rest of this book is filled with really, really cool ideas and advice about how to implement certain elements of this that don't necessarily require you to do that whole player scheduling their own mission part, right? Like that's a conceit of it, but it's not, it's not strictly necessary for this thing to work and for the rest of the book to be viable in terms of the ideas that it's giving you and the toolkit that it's giving you, because it is a toolkit. It's a toolkit. And then at the end of it, the appendices are filled with worked examples of the toolkit, which, you know, I love, right? I love when there's a worked example of what they're telling you. It's some of the, my favorite parts of some of the blue covered books that we talked about last year were some of those best parts were the, okay, do this. Okay. Now here's an example of how we did it. Uh there's some just amazing sections in here also on building a campaign history mm-hmm. and layers of setting history and lore. And I can't say enough good about that in terms of delivering uh, ideas and sense of place to the players. It's so good. Uh, so I'm really excited to get into that too. That's That's some of the stuff that I think you and I both really – enshrined in our heart of hearts for games. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like I've listened Definitely. to your show. You can't fool me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, do we want to take it out? I think we're good. Excellent. Uh, Sam, where can people find you on this here internet? On this here interwebs, you can find me, of course, on the Tome Show Edition Wars and behind the DM screen. And you can find me on the Tome Show Discord channel. So go there and start chatting and I'll respond to you. Or you can find me on RPGmusings.com. What about you? Uh, you can find me on Twitter at Brenda Stoddard. Uh, I write for Tribality.com. My personal blog is BrandaStoddard.com. And I have a Patreon where I would love to receive your support. It is Brandis Stoddard. All right, everyone. Stay safe. We hope you enjoyed this episode and uh, this is on drive through RPG. There's a link in the show notes. If you want to look at it, you can uh, get the PDF um, or I, I, I do recommend the hard cover. If you have a magnifying glass, the font is really small. The PDF should be good for letting you zoom in yeah, and out. Yeah. But seriously, it's a great read. I highly recommend it. And we're going to spend the next at least two episodes talking about the nitty gritty details inside the book. Sam. So, yes. My man, there is a section on crafting. I have bad news. I'm going to have opinions. Yeah, I thought you might. Yeah. We're not getting out of here soon, y'all. <laughs>